The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you will turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, and during our Lord's Supper services, I have been doing a short series on assurance of the faith. How can we be assured in Christ? So we continue this afternoon in Romans 8. Now for those of you who are parents, you know one of the many joys of parenting is when we have evidence that our children know beyond a doubt that we love them and that they can trust us. Sometimes it's as simple as being in a, in a crowded place and them wanting to hold tightly onto your hand and not let go. Other times it's waking up in the middle of the night from a bad dream or just wanting to be close or getting hurt and saying, I want my mommy or I want my daddy. It's a big win in my book when my children can be assured that their mother and I love them and will care for them and provide for them and do whatever we can to the best of our ability for them. Good parents want their children to have an assurance of their love and their trustworthiness and their care. Well, we all know that God is the greatest of all fathers. God is everything that a good father wishes he could be but can't. So even if you had or have a great father who is godly and who is patient and wise and reasonable and provides you with precisely what you need and he disciplines with reasoned judgment and and careful explanation and care and he shepherded and loved your heart unconditionally, even he is not perfect and has fallen far short in many ways and would tell you of those things he's keenly aware of. Even the best father in the world can never compare to what God is for his children. And because of that, we can know that even more than the very best father and what he wants in this world for his children, God wants his children to know that he loves them, that they can trust him, that they can have assurance that they will be with him forever and ever. And as we continue in this short series, looking at this issue of Christian assurance, we will look at it another way in which the Lord gives us an assurance of our salvation by considering the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. If you are struggling to know that you are in Christ, if you do not have assurance that you are a Christian, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit gives life and hope. Understanding the work of the Holy Spirit gives peace. And so let's look together at Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, the hinge on which this passage swings is verse 16. That's the heart of the matter for us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But we have to ask the question, how? Hopefully we'll see just that. We'll build around verse 16 by asking that question. How does he do this? How does this work? What is the Holy Spirit doing to bring that to fruition so that we can know that we are the children of God? Well, the first thing we see is in verses 12 and 13, that you can know you're a child of God when you are not living according to the flesh. When do you struggle most with your assurance? Most likely, it's when you are in sin or when you're dealing with the aftermath of sin. Sometimes it may be amid a great trial or suffering, but more often than not, it's tied to our sin. And unless you've only been a Christian for about 10 minutes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those moments after we finally recognize what we've done is sinful, we feel the guilt We feel the weight of it. We feel the pain of having pleased ourselves over and above acting by our knowledge of what God desires. And over and above our ability to live, not according to the flesh, but in obedience to what God requires. And as Christians, we know we're not obligated to sin, and yet we do sin. And we will Not out of an inability to stop, but out of an unwillingness to completely die to ourselves and live onto Christ. And so we will respond to our children or our spouse with harsh words that we know will hurt them to make ourselves feel superior. We will gossip to assuage our own guilt in a situation or to cast a bad light on another person in order to put a spotlight on us. We will try to numb our pain or our laziness or some void in an attempt to forget the pressures of life by misusing the gifts of God like drink and food and sex. And it's in those times, it's when we face, when we come face to face with the reality of what we've done that we most often pause and think, am I even really a Christian? If I were, would I do this? Have you ever been there? Now, of course, my aim is to give us some assurance, to remind us that if we are in Christ, we are secure in Christ without question. However, we cannot forego the hard questions we have to ask ourselves when we are in sin just to be assured because it's possible, and some do have a false assurance. It's possible to be sure of salvation that never really existed in the first place. And so verses 12 and 13 remind us that there is a kind of living that makes it very clear to us that we may not be children of God. If you live according to the flesh, he writes, you will die. We must take that seriously and determine whether or not we are indeed in the faith. But we have to pay attention to how Paul writes this. Notice, he he doesn't write, if you commit a sin according to the flesh. He doesn't write, whenever you walk in the flesh, you should question your salvation. No, he writes, if you live according to the flesh. 
And he writes this in the present tense. He's like, it's like he's saying, if this is the ongoing reality of your life, if this is what you are continually doing, if this is the pattern of your life and the decisions you make and your interactions with others, the things you enjoy most, what is the constant drumbeat of your everyday life? And if it's according to the flesh, that is a problem. Now listen, as, as you live life on this earth, the flesh is going to rise up from time to time. You're going to do things selfishly. You're going to do things in a worldly way. We came into the Christian life as broken, needy people who couldn't clean ourselves up. And we remain broken and needy people who are being cleaned up by Christ. But we won't arrive until we get beyond the grave into the life to come. But if, if you get honest with yourself right now and all you can see is that your life is living according to the flesh, I'm not just talking about being moral here in the external sense. I'm talking about how you think, how you reason, how you make decisions, what excites you, what gets you out of bed in the morning and gets you going day by day. If all of that is according to the flesh, and all of this is just landing on you with a massive weight. You are in a place in your life where you need to stop and determine whether or not the Spirit of God is working in you. Just as much as there are Christians not being assured of their faith, there are also people who are sure they are Christians when the pattern of their lives reveals that they are indeed not. So false assurance is real. And of course, far more deadly than a Christian not having assurance, even though they're in Christ. So if you're hearing what I'm saying and your response is, yes, that's me, but I know that nothing's going to be done about it and you're sort of apathetic about the whole thing, beware. Because what does Paul remind us? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. This isn't him saying you're going to do something stupid and die because of it. And he's not just reminding us that at the end of our lives, we all die. No, Paul is referring to eternal, everlasting death. He's referring to judgment and hell, which are the penalty of sin for those who do not trust in Christ. And so this is when you say, thank you, pastor, for this sermon on assurance. You're quite the Barnabas today. <laughs> but this is just the first Point. It's an important point. We can't overlook it just to be assured. Now here's where I think most of us probably are when we struggle with assurance. Yes, I sin. Yes, I have some terrible things that have gone on in my life as a Christian. I wish they weren't on my record. Yes, I'm very tempted to make bad decisions in terrible ways. But is this the trajectory of my life? That's the question. Am I living according to the flesh or do I have instances where I walk in the flesh but in my guilt I am brought to a place of regret that leads to repentance? I hope you see the difference. You see the difference is that which is marked by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One of the ways verse 16 happens in our lives is that we have convictions in our hearts when we sin. It's the Holy Spirit working as we walk in sinful behavior and in response to circumstances. It's the Holy Spirit saying, don't do it. You don't have to do it. Why are you doing this? 
And it's the Holy Spirit working in you when you're broken and feeling defiled and wrecked afterwards saying, when you're saying to yourself, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I need to be reconciled. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to repent. And if you can look at your life and see that a lot is going on in following the flesh, but there is no desire or longing for repentance or reconciliation and being right before God and how you live your life, examine yourself. If there is brokenness and repentance when you sin, and sin is not in the unrepentant trajectory of your life, there's good evidence that the Spirit of God is living and working within you. And as unlikely as that should be, as much as we don't deserve or merit the mercy of God in not destroying us, as much as we don't deserve the grace of God in pouring out his loving kindness to us day by day, he does it anyway. Why? Not, not because of who we are in ourselves, but because of who Christ is in our place and because of what has been purchased for us in him. So that's our first assurance. You can know that you are a child of God if you are not living, if the trajectory of your life is not living according to the flesh. Second thing we see in verses 13 and 14, you can know you are a child of God because you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It follows on from our first point. So you're, you're not living according to the flesh, but on the contrary, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You're identifying what those things are in your life and they are being eliminated from your life. This is the connection between verses 13 and 14. Remember again, verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How does he do that? Am I being led by the Spirit of God? That's the question that comes out of verse 14. If the Spirit leads me, I can know I am saved because that assures me that I'm a son of God. So what is the connection here? It's the first word in verse 14. That's the word for. Look again, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So in other words, Paul is saying, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if you do not live according to the flesh, by the spirit, you won't die, but you will live. And the reason you will live is because you are being led by the Spirit and the children of God don't die. I hope you see that. So how do I know then if I'm being led by the Spirit? That's a huge important question. It comes right out of verse 14. I want to know that I am a son of God. I want to know that he is my father and I am his son. So how can I know that if I'm being led by the Spirit? It means I'm aiming at destroying sin in my life that comes about by living according to the flesh. So if I'm a child of God, I will destroy, I will put to death, I will do battle with the deeds of the flesh. And I know I'm a child of God when that's happening because only a child of God puts to death the deeds of the flesh. 
And I know I'm a child of God when that's happening because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit and him leading me in that, I have no desire to kill the deeds of the flesh. That leading of the Holy Spirit is him leading me to do, verse 13, namely to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I want to point out once again that verse 13 is written in the present tense. It's an ongoing reality. It's something that's happening with regularity. As I look at my life and see the things that keep me from having sweeter, fuller, more fulfilling, more rewarding communion with God, am I turning to God and saying, Lord, get rid of it. Get this out of me. Get this off of me. I don't want this. Do what needs to be done to get rid of it. I'd rather go to heaven with one less eye and one less hand than to be cast into hell forever. Do whatever it takes. And then following the leading of the Spirit, taking the necessary steps to get rid of the deeds of the flesh in your life. This doesn't mean we say, you know, I've always had a problem with lying all the time. I do hate that I'm a liar, but it's just who I am. And I just wish God would stop me from lying. And then you go on lying. No, that's not killing the deeds of the flesh. It would look like going back to those places, to those people where I lied and confessing my sin. Telling them, perhaps at your job, you hired me based on certain criteria and I lied about my credentials or whatever it is. It's not, it's not just wishing, it's not just wishing that I didn't do the thing. It's not just not doing the thing anymore, but it's making it right when I did do the thing, repenting of it, being reconciled, and no longer walking in it. It's saying I know the consequences of being honest here might be significant, but I'm living under the weight, the guilt of my sin, and I need to be clean, I need to destroy it. And so what do we do? We swallow hard, we trust God, we follow the leading of the Spirit of God, and we do the right thing because it glorifies Him. It gives you greater peace with Him. And it helps you to look a little easier in, at yourself in the mirror tomorrow. Look, praise God. You may have never thought about it this way, but praise God if you hate the sight of what you see when you sin as you stare into the mirror. Praise God when you have a hard time after you sin looking at yourself in your own eyes because you are burdened with the guilt of your sin. If you aren't taking that as a gift from God to drive you to reconciliation and repentance, then you're not doing anything to kill the deeds of the flesh. If you're not taking steps to kill your sin before it kills you, you have no assurance and you shouldn't have assurance. But listen, the deeds of the flesh, the sin you must deal with is your sin. Not someone else's, not society's, not the nation's, but yours. Do you hate your sin more than you hate other people's sin? If you do, you can be assured. You can have assurance of your salvation. If you're, if you're locked in the constant daily battle to put to death the things that continually creep up and tempt us to live in such a way that dishonor God and please our flesh. Thirdly, verse 15, you can know you're a child of God because you cry, Abba, Father. 
Again, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How? Verse 15, he leads us to cry, Abba, Father, because we are not slaves, but we are adopted as the children of God. We are sons and daughters of God who have been removed from the kingdom of darkness and made members of the family of God and brought into the kingdom of light. Our king is not a tyrant. He doesn't make us slaves under a heavy yoke and a massive burden that he calls us to carry on our own, but we have a king who comes to us and he says, call me father. And Paul is telling us here, if you regularly cry out, Abba, Father, you are a child of God. You are a Christian. Now, you know, because you're students of the Bible, this can't possibly mean that all we need to do is refer to God as Father, and if we do, we're fine, because we can train anyone to do that. It's not just saying the name. If that was the case, Paul would have just written Father. Now, if you're a child of God You do call him father, but that's not what he's right. He writes, it's a bit more specific here. He writes, Abba, father. Why does that matter? Because the name Abba is not so formal. It's more intimate. It communicates something of love and trust and affection and openness in the name. It's like when a child has a bad dream at 2 a.m., and comes into the room and shakes you awake. It's like saying, Abba, Abba, I had a bad dream. I'm scared. It's sweet, and it's full of a sense of I trust you, and I need you right now, and not just a formal father. And God gives us this kind of access and permission to have that kind of relationship with him. And so Paul is conveying here that a child of God has an intimacy with God where we can come to him as children with love and intimacy and deep affection knowing that if anything is going to be made right, if we're going to feel safe and cared for, if we're going to have our needs met, if we're going to walk through the scary times, the hard times, the trying times, we need to do it with our Abba holding our hand all the way through. It's me going to him as my father, not just a father. Notice Paul writes that we cry, Abba, Father. We don't just say it, we cry it. That that carries some emotional authenticity and earnestness. We have this sincere longing in our hearts So when we're fearful or when we're in pain, when we're worried, when we're confused, when we're spiritually dry, when we're in sin, when we're guilty, we cry out to God, Abba, I need you. I I love you. Help me. It's not flowery speech. It's not reciting the Psalms. It's not well planned out. It's the prodigal coming back to the father and saying, Abba, I'm sorry. I need you. Only a Christian can have that kind of experience. And the longer you know the Lord, the more real this is to you. If you've ever known a young person who's been adopted, not as a newborn, but maybe a bit older, they knew what was going on, you understand this. At first, they come into the home and they aren't entirely comfortable with everything. And so they follow all the rules and they are very clean and appropriate about everything. 
maybe a bit timid. They'll, they'll ask if they can get a snack from the pantry. They'll take off their shoes at the door. They'll keep their room clean and make their bed. Make sure all the clothes get into the basket. They'll help with the dishes. They won't sit down until they know everything's taken care of. But in time, what happens? They know they're safe. And they know they're not going to get tossed out and they get comfortable. And there's something beautiful to that. Praise God for that. Does, that, does it mean there, that there won't be a few run-ins and a need for discipline? Well, there certainly will be. But most importantly, it means that they know that they are loved and cared for and that they can be themselves and not have to work for affection and love or acceptance. Now, brothers and sisters, as adopted children of God, we don't need to work for anything. That's the beauty of the gospel of God's pure grace. We don't have to work for God to love us or to care about us or to provide for us. We don't have to prove anything by our works. And even if we try, they're never going to be good enough because they don't meet the standard of perfection that the law requires. And so, no, not only do we have our Abba Father, we also have our elder brother who was able to live perfectly on our behalf, who died in our place so that we can be adoptable. Not by our own work, not by our own worthiness, but by his work and worthiness being applied to us. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by that work and the death of our Savior, we are given the right to call him, to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Well, all of this comes to this marvelous promise in the end, and it's only, and, and, and it's not only that we now can have assurance, but that this is tied to this tremendous promise that will help us walk with the Spirit instead of walking by the flesh. Verse 17 shows us that as a child of God, you are a fellow heir with Christ. I've never seen anyone, I'm sure it's happened, but I've never seen anyone turn away an inheritance. But what will we inherit in this case? There's three things very quickly I wanna point out. And we're looking at the promise here because it's tied to our assurance that they can serve to sort of entice us out of our sin and out of our indifference to God's fatherhood. They're motivators for us to keep striving for the kingdom of God when things get difficult. Here they are. First, we will inherit the world. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If we are true believers in Christ, we are the offspring of Abraham. And if we are true believers in Christ, because we are his offspring, we will inherit the world. It's ordinary people indwelt by the Holy Spirit becoming heirs of the world. So what do I mean that knowing this helps us strive all the more faithfully and not feed the flesh? When I know that I will inherit the world one day, if I can meditate on that reality, I don't have to crave to have and to have and to have more and more here and now. It's all yours in just a little while. So it's really, really not your best life now. Your best life is later if you're a child of God. 
which should motivate us to continue striving for the kingdom. Now you may suffer. Later, you inherit the earth. Secondly, we inherit God. Romans 5.2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What do you get when you get to heaven? A lot of wonderful things, but most importantly, you get God. Everlasting, never-ending, unhindered, perfect communion with God, with your Creator. So even though the flesh is telling you to find pleasure in the stuff, when the Spirit is working in you and your eyes are set beyond this Beyond this life, beyond the grave, you don't find your hope in stuff or in people or even in your relationships. You might think it will fulfill you. You might think these things will fill your longings, but you know they won't ultimately. God is the one we are made to enjoy. And when we are children of God, we inherit the privilege of communing and enjoying him forever. Thirdly, we inherit a glorified body, Romans 8, 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I don't know about you, but this gets me very excited. Now, it's not because I can eat what I want or do physically whatever I want. It's not about getting not getting fat or eating all the good foods or being able to slam dunk a basketball. That's not the point. Look beyond that to the reality of what goes on in your flesh every single day. In your new glorified body, everything here that's threatening to become an idol won't be a threat any longer. It will no longer be true that your food and your drink and sex or relationships or exercise or or looking or feeling a certain way, none of that will be an idol. You won't even have the slightest temptation toward that. Every single bite of food you put in your mouth will be pure, unadulterated worship. I can't wait. But last thing, and it's essential, all of this comes how? What does Paul say? Verse 17 again, really important, provided we suffer with him. So Paul is saying that for me to know that I am a child of God, I need to, is he telling me I need to go out and find some persecution? I need to make sure I'm persecuted and suffering for the faith to get to heaven? Is that what Paul is saying here? No, that's not his point. The emphasis here, when Paul writes, provided we suffer with him, is in those words, with him, with Christ. And here's the reality. We live in a fallen, broken world, and so everyone, without exception, in some way, everyone will suffer. So Paul emphasizes that we suffer in him. In other words, are you willing to stick with him when you suffer? When it's at its worst, when things are really bad, when everything is horrible, with all, of your, with all of your suffering, will it be sanctified by the conscious confidence that you can say, this for me right now is for my father, my Abba, to knock the props of self-reliance out from under me so that in my life I can lean more and more upon him. Do you have that confidence? 
It happens only through suffering because if we as fallen people were not facing one trial after another, we would continue to fall in love with the comforts of this life and forget God completely. He knows us. He's our father. And he knows that sometimes we need to suffer in order to get our inheritance. And he's not just our father, he's, a, he's the good doctor or good shepherd and sometimes a good doctor has to break our leg in order to make it better or cut it off to save the rest of the body. And so suffering with Christ is not shaking our fist at God when suffering comes and walking away, but instead it's confidently and joyfully saying in the midst of it all, Abba, Father, I hate my sin more than I hate losing these pleasures in my life. So have your way with me. You're my loving father. You're a wise and faithful surgeon. Do what you must do to keep me leaning on and depending in you. And then brothers and sisters, we can know for sure. And God wants that for us. He wants you to know that you are safe in him. I pray, I pray that the Lord will help us all to have true assurance of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm gonna pray and then we will sing as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Abba, Father, truly and indeed we come to you in humility, recognizing, acknowledging, admitting that we still struggle with the temptations and deeds of the flesh, that we still have thoughts in our minds and words on our lips, intentions in our hearts and actions with our feet in our hands that we do and we are ashamed of and that we must come to admit that we are still dealing with our sin Lord, we don't deserve what you have given to us. We have reminders every single day in our own lives that we do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve to be loved by you. And yet, you have given us access. You have given us the opportunity not to just come to you as our king, not to just come to you as a sovereign, not to just come to you as a deity, and not even just to come to you as our father, but as our Abba Father, as the one who has loved us and given us full and complete access any hour of any day at all times through the entirety of our lives. And so I pray, God, that you help each of us to turn our hearts all the more faithfully to you, that we would look forward to that great inheritance which is soon to be ours, and that as we suffer with Christ, that we do so faithfully, leaning not on our own understanding, leaning not on the comforts of this world, but leaning fully and completely upon Christ and him alone. And so we pray, Lord, as we come to this Lord's Supper table now, we remember the sacrifice of Christ, all that was accomplished so that we could come to you and cry, Abba, Father. And may it all be to your glory and for the good and nourishment and strengthening and building up of your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.